Christianity is all or nothing. The Sermon on the Mount shows us that, that Jesus is our Redeemer, we're forgiven, but he's also our Lord, right? And he expects obedience from us. And we can't separate Jesus into parts, right? He's our Savior, we are forgiven, but he's also the Lord over our lives. We're forgiven, but there are expectations of us. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is describing the character and the lifestyle of those who belong to the kingdom Jesus is describing and that he says has come into the world. And you know what it looks like? It looks a lot like people keeping God's law. If that surprises us, it shouldn't. I mean, that's what the law was for, if you remember, right? To show us how to love God and how to love neighbor. Jesus keeps reemphasizing that through the Sermon on the Mount. So that's what the kingdom of God coming into the world was like, people uh, obeying the law of God. That's what it looks like. Obeying the law of God as it's written, though, not just as it had been told by the scribes and the Pharisees. God's people couldn't trust the, tribe, the, the scribes and the Pharisees anymore because they'd, they'd blown it. They, they were misleading them. They added to the law of God and they distorted it. But here we get the pure and undefiled interpretation of the law the very spirit of the law and the prophets, from the king himself. So let's read this, picking back up in Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 43. Now hear the words of the one true and living God. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect." And Jesus has just gotten done in the previous passage talking about retaliating against your neighbor, about our tendency to hit back and hit back harder when someone insults us or injures us. He says, don't do that. Don't be so quick to retaliate. Don't be so quick to defend your honor and your rights when you're offended. Have a right view of yourself. And in having that right view of yourself, don't be so petty, Right? Don't be so petty and insecure. Now he takes it up a notch. It's not enough to not hate your neighbor. It's not enough to not lash out in anger against him. He, Jesus says to love him. Here's something I want to say before we let ourselves off the hook, though, okay? Had this conversation with somebody just a few minutes ago, earlier this morning, before the service got started. Indifference towards your enemies is hatred, too. just ignoring them, right? Indifference towards your enemies is hatred too. Jesus says, love them. Love is more than this, but no less. It is wanting what's best for someone. No one's asking you to love Nancy Pelosi the way you love your Aunt Nancy. Right? Nobody's asking you to love the serial killer the way that you love your spouse. 
But you should love them enough to want what's best for them, and what's best for them is not for them to continue just running around doing whatever they please and angering God with their rebellion and wickedness just as long as they stay out of your way. What's best for them is that God, by his free grace, would stop them dead in their tracks and cause them to fall on their faces and fear and awe of him and to repent and to believe the gospel, to repent of their sin and to rise again a new creation walking in the light of truth. That's what's best for them, and that's what we should want for them. That's the bare minimum of loving them. The bare minimum of loving them isn't, isn't just not hating their guts. The bare minimum of loving them isn't just not wanting a piano to fall out of the sky and land on them like some Bugs Bunny cartoon. That's not enough. So indifference is hatred too. Remember that. The bare minimum of loving them is wanting what's best for them. And what's best for them is to be born again. Born of above. Transferred out of darkness into God's marvelous light. Because once we were not the people of God. 1 Peter chapter 2. But now we are the people of God. Once we had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. And so we should want the same for our neighbor, and our neighbor is anyone made in the image of God, which only includes everybody. Now, there's some things we're going to need to work out in order to have a balanced view of all this, because it's really easy for us to toss the L word around, love, and have no idea what it really means. God is love, people say. And what many people mean when they say that is that that's all he is. It's not. He's just, he's holy, and because he is just and holy, he has a righteous anger that burns against the wicked every day, Psalm 711. People say, hate the sin, love the sinner. Well, you're not going to just find sin in hell. You're going to find it full of sinners. God doesn't just send sin to hell. He sends sinners to hell. So we're going to have to try a little harder and pay a little closer attention to what Scripture teaches us regarding God's love and his command for us to love our enemies. So here's three points for you this morning. God loves everyone. God does not love everyone. And you can put in parentheses there, equally. And third, and perhaps most importantly, you're not God. So first point, God loves everyone. Is that true? I mean, how does that strike you when I first say it? God loves everyone. Yes and no, right? That's why these first points are important for us to go over this morning. Gets the wheels turning, doesn't it? God loves everyone, and God does not love everyone. How does that work out? Take a deep breath right now for me. Everybody, that's God's air you're breathing. You just did it again. Take your hand and put it, put it on your chest. See if you can feel your heartbeat. You feel that? Do you think that'll go on beating another second without him allowing it? That he allows it is evidence he loves you. 
everyone living, righteous, unrighteous, Christian, Jew, Muslim, Hindu, Wiccan, atheist, all of us share in that common grace of God that he gives and sustains life. God does love everyone in the sense that he causes the sun to shine and causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust alike, just the way Jesus says there in verse 45. He doesn't just do those things for those who love him. He does it for everyone. He doesn't just love those who love him, he loves everyone. It's not only the righteous that get to go on and experience great joys in life, right? It's, you know, the joys of accomplishment, the joys of, of having family, the material blessings of wealth, uh, some of the physical pleasures of, of, of the world that we're allowed to enjoy. It's not only the righteous who gather around tables for giant feasts like we will later this month for Thanksgiving. So in that sense, God, being sovereign and providing everyone with everything good they experience in life, does love everyone. That's true. If he didn't, no one, righteous or not, would experience those great joys and blessings in life. The truth is this life, in a lot of ways, is pretty good. There are a lot of enjoyments in life. Sadly, this life is the closest to heaven many people will ever get. But what we're talking about is, is God's common grace. It's what's referred to as his common grace. It's a miracle. Given man's rebellion against the God who made him, it's a miracle he doesn't just wipe all of us off of the face of the earth for our sin. That's what he did in the flood, right? Rid the world of wickedness. And then he promised he wouldn't flood the earth again to cleanse it from evil. He was going to endure evil for a time, to be patient and to be long-suffering. And eventually he would cleanse the world from evil by his own blood, but that's getting ahead of ourselves. The point is, God chose to love his enemies enough to have mercy on them and to have patience with them. And that's what he continues to do today, and that's what we should do. Love our enemies. So God does love everyone, and yet he calls them to repentance lest they perish, doesn't he? Loves them enough to tell them they're in hot water. So that's a way in which we love people, because that's wanting what's best for them, repentance and faith. What we want for them is for God to snatch them out of the clutches of the devil and for them to be born again. John 3, 3, lest a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. When I was about 15 years old, my best friend of now 30 years tried to get me saved. He had me kneel with him and say the prayer, you know the one, right? Had me ask Jesus into my heart. And he was really into this, you know? So like, he's my friend, so I went along with it. But I didn't believe in all this hocus pocus religious stuff that was for weak-minded people who couldn't think for themselves, right dad? My dad taught me that. It's a miracle that you have two arrogant, God-hating men sitting in church with you today. Even more strange that one's preaching to you. I wasn't saved by that prayer. You know why? Because no one has ever been saved by that prayer. 
Only Jesus can save someone, and he doesn't need their permission. Only Jesus can save someone. I would have never given him permission. You know, you realize that? I would have never given him permission. He dragged me out of the darkness anyway, like eight years later. And when I say dragged, I mean dragged. I didn't want to go. The point is this. This Jesus that died for everyone but doesn't actually save anyone unless you let him is not Jesus. He is a fake, powerless, counterfeit Jesus that will lead people straight to hell. God does love everyone, but he does not love everyone the same. There are some he loves so much that he sent his son to die in order to redeem them, and he actually redeems them. He doesn't just make it possible. He doesn't just lay it on the table and lay it out there as an option for you to either choose or reject. Jesus actually atones for the sins of his beloved people. He didn't bleed for everyone and only get some. He bled for some and got all of them. That's a very different kind of love. That's a love that goes all the way. And before I move on to the next point, I want to frame it with something John Owen once wrote. And if you haven't heard of John Owen, man, you're missing out. The old Puritan theologian uh, that any Christian would do well to, to read a little bit of. But here's something he said. It's his answer to the question that people often ask. For whom did Christ die? For whom did Christ die? This is what he says. The Father imposed his wrath due unto, and the Son underwent punishment for, and he gives three options. All the sins of all men, all the sins of some men, some of the sins of all men. He says, if the last is true, that Christ died for some of the sins of all men, then all men have some sins to answer for, and so no one is saved. If the second is true, that Christ died for all the sins of some men, then Christ, in their place, suffered for all the sins of the elect in the whole world, and this is the truth. This is what we affirm because this is what the Bible teaches. But if the first be the case, that Christ died for all the sins of all men, why are not all men free from the punishment due unto their sins? And you say, because of unbelief. Owen continues, I ask, is this unbelief a sin or is it not? If it is then Christ suffered the punishment for it, or he did not. If he did, why must unbelief hinder them more than their other sins for which he died? If he did not die for the sin of their unbelief, then he did not die for all their sins. That makes the case well, and it indicates to us this is a very different kind of love. There's a love of God that keeps you alive, that keeps you fed, that holds off on his judgment for your sin, that is patient with you and allows you to enjoy life's pleasures. But there's another kind of love that takes his wrath and divine judgment due for your sin upon himself in order to make you his own. It's a special kind of love. And so point number two, God does not love everyone. Dot, 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 equally. Okay? 
Everyone who has ever sipped a breath of air deserves the wrath and curse of God, but not everyone gets the wrath and curse of God. And the only ones who don't are those that God has chosen to love in a unique and special and redemptive and salvific way. And that is through the unmerited favor of God. All of mankind is totally depraved, unable to do anything that, that, that's pleasing to God by nature. Because everything that man does by his own nature is, is stained with, with selfishness and sin. So his election of us is, is what we call unconditional election. It, it wasn't conditioned upon anything other than God's free grace. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 6. God loves everyone, but he doesn't love everyone like that. You see? People often say, we're all God's children. Nope. Nope. We're all made in God's image. We're all image bearers of God, and for that reason, we have inherent value and dignity and worth, and we're to respect the image of God in one another, but we are not all God's children. By birth, we are children of wrath. In John chapter 1, John tells us that Jesus came to his own and his people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. We had to be given the right to be, to, to be called children of God, and it was not a right that we earned. Adopted children don't choose their parents. He chose to love us in a unique way and to adopt us into his family. So God does not love everyone like he loves his own. And that shouldn't startle us. It shouldn't startle us. You love your own children more than you love mine, don't you? I mean, you should. But you... you you love my children too, don't you? I mean, you don't hate them. I mean, at least I hope you don't. I mean, especially since you guys generally get to see them on their best behavior when they're at church. And that doesn't happen by accident, by the way. That takes practice. And y'all just say, you know, they wouldn't get that practice if we just shuffled all the children off in a room together to play with toys and eat glue while we're all in here worshiping, right? They can play with toys and eat glue at home. When they're at church, they're learning how to behave when the saints gather on the Lord's day to worship him, and they're learning how to do that by watching all of you. So thank you. Thank you for that. But the way you love my children versus your own is obviously different. It's a different kind of love. It's a greater love, isn't it? And that's okay. And if it's okay for you, it's certainly okay for God, isn't it? God does not love everyone the same. 
He does love everyone in some sense, right? His common grace toward all the living, causing the sun to shine and causing the rain to fall on the just and the unjust alike. But now some of you might be thinking, well, what about all that stuff in the Old Testament where where God's like telling his people to wipe out entire nations of other people, to kill them and leave no one behind? If you're thinking that this morning, I like you. We're the same. I struggled with all that stuff too. I said, don't you tell me, don't talk, give me this stuff about a loving God. A loving God would never do any of that. That's not love. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Which brings me to my final point. You're not God. His ways are not your ways. Your ways are not his ways. His ways are higher than ours. God is love. So we don't get to come up with some other version or definition of love and then impose that on God. We don't get to stuff God into our idea of love and then complain when not all of him fits. If our idea of love does not comport with the very character of God, which also includes his wrath against unrighteousness, then we have not begun to think about love at all. That's the first thing. The second thing is, all that Old Testament stuff about wiping out entire nations of people, well, let's, let's read some of it so we can get good and hot and bothered, shall we? Deuteronomy chapter 20, verses 16 through 18. Feel free to turn with me there if you'd like. Deuteronomy chapter 20, 16 through 18. Here's what God says to his people that he's bringing into the land that he's promised to them but belongs to other people already, okay? But in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes. But you shall devote them to complete destruction, the Hittites and the Amorites, the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded, that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods. And so you sin against the Lord your God. Love of God, exhibit A. If we get into the book of Joshua, things really start to heat up. And the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon and chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth Haran and struck them as far as Azekah and Makeda. And as they fled before Israel, while they were going down the ascent of Beth Haran, the Lord threw down large hailstones from heaven on them as far as Azekah as they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. This is Joshua 10, 10 through 11. Right after this, Joshua corners five kings in a cave and orders his men to drag them out of the caves, out of hiding, and to step on their necks. And Joshua says to them, do not be afraid or dismayed, be strong and courageous, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. And afterward, Joshua struck them and put them to death, and he hanged them on five trees, and they hung on the trees until evening. Then you get into the next chapter, chapter 11. And the Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid of them, for tomorrow at this time I will give over all of them slain to Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. So Joshua and all his warriors came suddenly against them by the waters of Merom and fell upon them. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel who struck them 
and chased them as far as Great Sidon and Mizrafoth Mayim, and eastward as far as the valley of Mizpah. And they struck them until he left none remaining. And Joshua did to them just as the Lord said to him, he hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. There you have it. The love of God. Did God make an oopsie? Would he take it back if he could? Does that make us a little uncomfortable? What it should do is is redefine love for us. But you say how, right? And I get it. Been there. How, how, how? All those poor people. That's what we say. Want to know how I know you're not God? (laughs) Because you can't see evil for the offense it is to a holy God. And you can't see the danger that it is to people made in his own image and the absolute devastation it causes in his creation. And you don't see all of human history through the lens of his redemptive purposes. God does. God commanding Israel to wipe out nations that inhabited the land that he was giving them was God ridding the world of what he knew was a clear and present danger to his plans to bring about a redeemer. You know, we've got to put this stuff in the context of the the whole story, don't we? God so loved the world, he planned to redeem it, and it started with a promise in the garden that the seed of the woman would one day come to crush the head of the seed of the serpent. Meanwhile, while the world waited for its hero, the line through which that seed would come had to be protected at all costs. We had to have uh, an Abraham, an Isaac, a Jacob, the, the, the 12 sons of Jacob that became the 12 tribes of Israel, one of which was the tribe of Judah uh, through which King David would come, right? One who would be another deliverer for Israel and a great king whose throne foreshadowed an even greater king who was going to come and whose rule would know no end. That's Jesus. That's how we get to Jesus. It took warding off evil for thousands of years to get there. And God did whatever it took. God loved the world enough to wipe out every threat to the coming of the promised Messiah and the good of his beloved people. That's love. If it were only a justification for his wrath and judgment that seems so severe to us, that would be enough. But it's it's love. Love that not even the forces of evil can stand against. Now, that's one side of the coin of this point, you are not God. The other side answers the question, okay, well, if it was okay for them to do that to their enemies then, then why is Jesus now here in the New Testament saying, love our enemies now? That's another good question. Consider what he's addressing specifically. Consider some of the context, what we've been going through as we've, we've looked at this section Right, of the Sermon on the Mount. His, his sort of, um, his way of, of 
course-correcting us. God never commanded his people to love their neighbor and hate their enemies. But that's what the Pharisees were teaching. They, they took a judicial principle and they reduced it down to a personal application. Okay? They reduced it down to a personal application where it became, it became an us and them thing instead of a God and them thing. Me getting my own justice, right? And that's what you saw in the Old Testament where God was dispossessing pagan nations of their land in order to bring his people in and to preserve them. He was bringing healing into the land by ridding it of wickedness. I mean, don't, don't we have to do that if you're going to heal a wound? You guys wouldn't believe how gnarly Levi's little fingernail looks right now. That thing came about clean off, you know? And constantly having to uh, apply ointment and, and you know, disinfect things to that to remove the infection so that that can heal. And, and so... God dispossessing these pagan nations was ridding the land of wickedness in order to bring about healing. You know, these people, sometimes you, you look at this stuff and you think, well, they couldn't have been all that bad, right? If you only knew, like, sometimes you have to read some other history and things to, to get a fuller picture of what these cultures and civilizations were like. But y'all, these weren't people just wanting to worship God in their own way. They were calling out to the darkness and inviting evil in through their religious practices. It was an abomination. It was pure evil, and it was dangerous for themselves and everyone else around them. And when God did bring that healing by wiping them out, you actually see God says, and the land had rest from war. The Pharisees' prescription of hating their enemies wasn't aimed at the land resting from war. It, was aimed at, it wasn't aimed at obedience to God or zeal for his redemptive purposes. It was aimed at holding on to an air of superiority over anyone who wasn't like them. That's what Jesus is addressing. Jesus reminds them, you know, essentially says, I have news for you. I've come for the Gentiles also. I've not come to save the righteous, but the unrighteous. They'd forgotten that. They'd forgotten they were formed as a people and, and blessed as a nation and protected from their enemies in order for God to bring about a fullness to, to redeem a war-torn, sin-infested earth. Summing up this point about you're not God, okay? God, God is making Jesus' enemies a footstool for his feet, not yours, He's bringing everyone and everything in subjection to himself, not in subjection to you. He's, making, he's, he's conforming people more and more into his own image and not yours. They're not supposed to look like you. So being about our Father's business, as Jesus was, that's what we should want for those who we may call our enemies, to love them enough to want what's best for them. And he's calling all people everywhere to repent of their sin against him. So it's appropriate for you to call them to do the same. That is, whether they feel like it or not, loving them. Isn't it? You know, somebody's... 
happy with, uh, you know, driving 80 miles an hour on, you know, southbound in the northbound lane out here on, you know, 26 or something. But, you know. is, it, is it loving to be like, oh, you do you, man. Indifference is hatred too. It's loving to warn them. Say, man, what are you thinking? You're going to kill yourself and everybody else. It's loving to warn them, to want that for them. So it's appropriate for you to do the same. He didn't say you have to like them, y'all. Okay? You catch that? He didn't say you have to like them. You don't have to agree with them or affirm them or allow your children to be influenced by them or even to, to think their ideas are equally valid. The reality is their ideas are not going to be equally valid unless they possess the mind of Christ. And yet, you love them because Jesus loves the unlovely and you are to be like him. Love the unlovely. It really is that simple. As we're wrapping up here, don't, don't wish your enemies dead and punished. Okay? Don't wish your enemies dead and punished. Wish them transformed and rewarded with what they don't deserve. Want for them what you have. Forgiveness and newness of life in Christ. It's only by God's grace you've escaped the judgment for your wicked deeds. And it's only by the grace of God they will be. So which will you pray for? That's where it lands. If all that's true, which will you pray for? The destruction of your neighbor or their salvation? Which would be better for the world? Which looks more like the project of restoration that God has set in motion and been about since the promise he made in the garden? It, put thing, it kind of puts things in perspective, doesn't it? It lifts our eyes to heavenly realities that are making a home with us here on earth. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This meal that we're about to enjoy together is the closest to heaven any of us can get on earth. Those who have been united to Christ by his sacrifice are welcome into the very presence of God to be fed and nourished spiritually. It's just bread and it's just juice. There's nothing special about the bread and the juice, but they're set apart for a holy use. This is, y'all, a real means that God uses to communicate his grace to these, these people he has especially loved. And so for that reason, it is limited to his people. Non-Christians have no, no interest in this. Only those who know their need of Jesus' body broken for them and his blood shed for their sins would even have an interest in this. Only his bride, only his church is welcome to come and join him at his table. If your relationship to Christ has only been sort of an informal flirting kind of relationship, 
then I would beg of you not to come and partake of these elements this morning. But I would welcome you to consider this morning, if you've been kind of one foot in and one foot out, I would urge you to consider, are you in or you out? Are you in or are you out? If you're not all the way in, God says taking these elements, eating and drinking of this bread and of this cup, you're eating and drinking judgment to yourself. Jesus went all the way for his people. And the evidence of you being his people is knowing that in your bones that he went all the way for you. And trusting in him alone for salvation. If that's you this morning, come and don't walk, run. This is for you. If you have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation and you've received the sign of belonging to his covenant people, you've been baptized, and you've committed yourself to a body of believers and the leadership of a local church, you are a part of God's family. And this is for you. So come, come worthily, God's word tells us, and know that your worth is only found in a savior that went all the way for you, that loved you before you loved him. You wouldn't love him if he had not loved you first. Who went all the way from A to Z to call you his own. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your covenant signs and symbols that allow us to know the truth of the gospel through all of our senses. We hear, we see, we can smell and touch and even taste your grace. I pray, Lord, you would now take these common elements and set them apart for an uncommon use, that your people would be filled and satisfied spiritually today, and that you would nourish our very souls. In Jesus' name, amen.